church, he is risen. Easter is a 40-day season, and so it is appropriate for us to make that proclamation this morning. And there perhaps is no greater time to remind ourselves of that truth um, than in the midst of those moments where we express our grief at the loss of our sister Letha. We're reminded of the hopefulness that we have in Jesus. I was reminded in a conversation I had with Letha just a few days ago of the strength of her faith and her love for Jesus and her excitement to be with the Lord and soon. <laughs> and she witnessed to me, she preached to me in that phone call, reminded me of the confidence that we ought to have in the Lord. And as we grieve our loss, I want to just create a little bit of space here this morning for you and for us as a church to be praying in particular for the Lyle family this morning. And so would you join me just in a word of prayer for Letha and Wanda and the Lyles this morning. Jesus, we have great confidence that Letha is in your arms. That brings us joy that puts a smile on our faces, and yet there's a part of us that grieves, that is sad because of the loss that our church and our city and the world has this day. The joy that Letha had, the positivity, the amount of prayer that she invested into this congregation and to me personally is a real loss. And so we grieve this morning, God. We pray in particular for Wanda, that you would be sustaining her spiritually, emotionally, that you would be caring for her in these days, that somehow in the midst of the tragedy that is death, that you would be a God who offers that peace that transcends all understanding to her. God, we're grateful for the life of Letha Lyle. We trust that you are a good God who's received her. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And amen. Well, we will certainly, as a church, be kind of extending uh, communication just about what the plans are as we celebrate Letha's life together in the coming weeks or months as a church. Uh, be sure to maybe send a text on over to Wanda. Uh, in these days just of encouragement and love and support as she appreciates all of those little communications. Uh, but there's a few other folks that I wanted to just recognize this morning for things going on in the life of our church. First, I just wanted to say thanks to Scott and to Patty for preaching the past couple of weeks. It has been a joy to be a little bit more present with my family as we uh, are navigating this new season of life with a second child. Uh, having a newborn with an infant is a lot different than just having a newborn with no infant around. Um, and so just grateful for them. was blessed by uh, the words that they had to speak to our church over the past couple of weeks. And I also wanted to extend just a congratulatory note to Jackie Simpson on completing her master's program in criminology at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide. Uh, I think that's what you're supposed to say for the University of Alabama. 
Jim is nodding his head yes, so I'm glad I got that one correct. But let's continue to lift Jackie up in prayer as she's kind of discerning and with wisdom trying to decide where she's going to go to law school uh, in the fall. And we'll continue to be praying for you, Jackie, and lifting you up. Um, Our congregation will be. We're excited to see what God has in store for you in the coming weeks, months, and years as you continue your educational pursuits. Well, in these weeks together, in this Easter season, we're sort of reflecting on these resurrection stories, these stories that come to us after the resurrection of Jesus, but before his ascension. And this morning, we're going to be in John chapter 20. If you have a Bible, would love for you to flip on over there. If you have a smartphone, feel free to punch your way on over there as well. Last week, Patty got us going by reflecting on the story of a road to Emmaus, where Jesus surprises a couple of dis- his disciples on a road traveling to Emmaus. And the, the sermon, I had to listen to it again this past week because there was so much that I wanted to unpack and receive again. But this morning, we're going to be wrestling with another well-known story. We're going to be wrestling with or reflecting on the story of doubting Thomas as he has been sort of affectionately, I guess, remembered throughout history. But we're going to read John 20, verses 19 through 30. I'm going to be reading the NRSV version this morning. But John's gospel reads this way. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails And my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. God, we're grateful for this story. We're grateful that it got included into the gospel text that we too might believe. And our prayer as a church is that we might believe and so in so doing receive life in the name of Jesus. And so we ask God, would you give us the grace we need to believe, to hear, and to see what it is you want to communicate to us in this text this morning. It's in our Lord, risen Lord's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we live in a society 
that has increasing skepticism about religious and spiritual claims. Uh, the segment of America's population, which no longer claim to have a religious affiliation known as the religious nuns, or you may have heard them referred to as just the nuns, has only been increasing over the past decade. Uh, perhaps you know friends who have walked away from a faith that they once had. Perhaps you have children or grandchildren who were raised in the church, were raised in some sort of faith, and have since walked away from that faith. It, it, in our society and in our nation, just over one in four people check the nun box when inquired as to what religious affiliation they maintain. And it would be easy for us to suggest that the increasing skepticism is the result of rational thinking or scientific progress. We do, after all, like to think that us as people and us as a society now are way more enlightened than those who existed 2,000 years ago. But as one author I read this week wrote, perhaps Thomas, the apostle who refused to believe Jesus had risen from the dead unless he could put his fingers in the wound of Jesus' side, is the patron saint of the nuns. You see, it didn't take 2,000 years of history, the Enlightenment, and modern science for people to become aware of the fact that, it, that dead people don't come back from the dead. <laughs> people have not been coming back from the dead long before the scientific method was around. And the challenge to believe in the resurrected Jesus today without seeing him are as difficult as they were that first Easter week. Doubting Thomas. It's a shame that this epithet was created from Thomas's name. It's unfortunate for him, and it's unfortunate for us. It's unfortunate for Thomas because he is most popularly remembered as the doubting disciple. He isn't remembered as the disciple who tradition says brought the gospel to India. <laughs> He isn't remembered as the disciple whose faith overcame doubt. He's simply remembered as the skeptic, as the doubter, the one who seems to have very little faith. But it's unfortunate for us because the label Doubting Thomas inevitably communicates that one ought to be ashamed for their doubts. No one ever refers to somebody as a doubting Thomas in a positive light as if that were a good thing. It always communicates, oh, you of little faith. And this is to our own loss because so many of us have had or maybe currently have doubts about Christianity. We have doubts about our own faith. And these go unexpressed and they go unstated because we think we ought to be ashamed of them. We think that they are a threat to faith. We think that they are a threat to the Christian community. Several years ago, I was reading a book uh, by a well-known pastor whose church sponsored a doubt night. Uh, people came to the church that evening and they were encouraged to write down on a piece of paper all of their questions and doubts and the tensions that they experience in their faith about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity and the church. And the pastor collected all of the anonymously submitted 
questions and comments in a large box and began to read them aloud in front of the congregation one by one. Why does God let people die so young? Why does it seem that mean people get the most money? Why does the killer go free and the honest man die of cancer? Sometimes I doubt God's presence in starving Africa. If we can ask God for forgiveness at our last breath, why strive for a godly life in the present? Either God is in control of everything, and so all the crap we see today is part of his plan, which I don't want to accept, or it's all out of control, which sucks too. What's up? Have you ever had questions like these? Have you ever had these tensions in your own faith and as you reflect on Christianity and the Bible and Jesus and church, have you ever felt those tensions that exist within you? Or consider one of the great Christian leaders of the 20th century, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is best known for her work in Calcutta, India, among the poor, for which she won the Nobel Peace Prize. In a book that was published and published the correspondence that she had with spiritual mentors and guides throughout her ministry and life, it was revealed that in her work of caring for the poor, she very rarely, if ever, felt the presence of God with her. In fact, she felt a lack of the presence of God in more than 50 years of her ministry in India. You see, the tragedy of the doubting Thomas labels that the questions and tensions and doubts that we sometimes have in faith go unstated and unexpressed even though they exist. They're the elephant in the room that the church and we as Christians often don't want to acknowledge because we're embarrassed, we're ashamed of these thoughts that drift in and out of our minds as we pursue Jesus, wondering if it's evidence that our faith is really fragile and anything that remotely looks like a doubt might actually crush it. But the interesting thing is that the Bible doesn't seem to be afraid or ashamed to speak about doubt like we are. In fact, that's what makes the inclusion of Thomas's story so interesting here in John's gospel. You see, at the end of the passage this morning, John writes that the whole gospel that he has put together has been collected, the stories, the signs, the way that he fit it all together, he structured it in, so, in such a way that those who would read it, those who would hear it, would believe in Jesus. That they would believe in Jesus and have life in his name because of their faith in him. So why include a story about a skeptical disciple? Why include a story about the disciple who had a really difficult time believing? The gospel, after all, is there to try and help us to believe. Why give those of us who might be skeptics, who might be doubters, an off-ramp to, from believing? Even Matthew's gospel records Jesus meeting with his disciples after his resurrection this way. This is the part right before the Great Commission that we often don't read. <laughs> But Matthew writes it this way, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. How can this be an effective piece of persuasion? If the very characters in the story who are experiencing and seeing the resurrected Jesus have doubts, 
They have reservations about what it is that they're actually seeing. You see, the Bible isn't afraid or shamed or threatened by skepticism or doubt. It doesn't ignore it or sweep it under the rug. The church doesn't stand on the shoulders of disciples who never had doubts. We don't stand on this tradition of faith where people had an unwavering commitment of faith in Jesus. There are skeptics among us. There are doubters that have come to us. They're filled the pages of Scripture, and not just the disciples. We see this in the Old Testament. You, you see it with Jeremiah. You see it with the prophets. Like, what is going on, God? You see it with uh, 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 John, Jesus' cousin, right? John the Baptist. But the good news for those who wrestle with God, who find tension within themselves about faith or when it comes to Jesus, is that Jesus meets Thomas right in the midst of his doubting. Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't dismiss Thomas. He doesn't challenge Thomas. Like, why don't you just believe I'm standing right here? You you heard testimony from your fellow disciples about what they saw why is your face so small? Why is your face so pathetic? You have been traveling with me for years. I've been talking about this particular moment. You ought to be ashamed. You just don't get it. This is not how Jesus responds to Thomas. Jesus, in fact, is the opposite. He comes close to Thomas. It is that Jesus actually meets Thomas in the midst of his unbelief. In fact, what Thomas rarely, if ever, gets credit for is that his faith ultimately overcomes his doubt. Thomas's faith is deepened and strengthened in the midst of his doubting. And maybe, maybe that's part of the point of this story's inclusion in John's gospel. Maybe that's part of the whole idea of why it's included in John's gospel. One of the things I like to do from time to time when I'm reading the Bible devotionally or even studying in preparation for a sermon, is I like to reflect on what it would have been like to be one of the specific characters in the story that I'm reading. Uh, imagine being Zebedee at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, watching your two sons, James and John, be called by Jesus, who just drop their nets in the middle of a work day, and they just take off going to follow this rabbi. What would have been going through your mind? Would you have been angry? Like, what, we need to finish the work day. You can't just leave in the middle of the day. Would you have been happy that his sons were pursuing a vocation to be a religious teacher or rabbi? I mean, how did he reflect on that, like, years after the fact? Like, he obviously had no clue that in that moment, his sons were going to join the most revolutionary movement in human history. I wonder how he reflected on that years down the road. Or imagine what it must have been like to be Peter when Jesus is feeding the 5,000. When Jesus says that he's going to feed these thousands of people with loaves and fish that just a little boy had in the crowd, what's going through your mind? Are you scoffing? Are you skeptical? Are you excited about what might happen? You know, as you watched him rip piece after piece of bread and handing it to others, like, were you just wondering and thinking, like, when is this going to run out? You know, as the crowds are trying to line up for food, concerned that the food's going to run out, are you sort of organizing a line? Or, like, how does that whole scene play itself out? And in some way, it seems as though Thomas's story is written into the gospel for us. 
You see, when Jesus first met with the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. We read in the passage this morning that Jesus meets with the other ten disciples the week before, but Thomas is not there. He didn't get to see Jesus. He didn't get to see the piercings in his hands or in his side. He simply received the news, word of mouth, just like us. Just like all of the generations of Christians who would come after the first century. And like Thomas, we ought to be honest enough to express and state our reservations and doubts. See, Thomas teaches us that doubt isn't the opposite of faith. Rather, doubt is part of the journey of faith. And that Jesus will meet us there in the midst of our doubts. Thomas isn't ashamed of them. And if the Bible isn't threatened by doubt, if Jesus isn't threatened by doubt, the church ought not to be threatened by doubt or skepticism or questions or tensions either. In our passage this morning, we, we find that Thomas is sharing his doubts with his fellow disciples. And the disciples, for their credit, do not reject him. They don't try and convince him. They don't dismiss him. They don't kick him out of the group. Is they just simply receive him in the midst of his skepticism and doubts. And my hope for Powerhouse Church is that we stand in the tradition and spirit of the Bible and Jesus and those first disciples, unthreatened and unashamed by doubt. Doubts can be crushing and isolating for people when they lack community to process those things within. And we need to cultivate as a church a spirit of generosity and hope and compassion for those who are wrestling with their doubts. I recently heard of a Christian high school, it's actually my alma mater, whose superintendent began to wrestle with the nature of Scripture. Specifically, he was wrestling with what to think of the Bible, what to do with the Bible. Is the Bible without error in all of its claims, historical, scientific? That is, when the Bible says there were 100,000 people there, there were 100,000 people there. Not that there were 90,000 or 99,000, there was exactly 100,000. Or is the Bible sort of without error when it comes to all things that pertain to our theology and our salvation, our understanding of God? In a technical way, it's, he was wrestling with, is the Bible inerrant and or infallible or, you know, how to go through these things? And as he began to wrestle with this question about what to do with the scriptures, he began to process it in a small group in his church community and shared these things, what he, what he thought was a confidant in this group. And this person who he shared these things with thought, the superintendent at a Christian high school can't be wrestling with these types of questions. He has to be certain. He has to be sure. And so he began to share with other people what the superintendent had been wrestling with. And his word began to spread. One thing led to another, and ultimately the superintendent was fired because of his skepticism, because of his doubts, because of his tensions and wrestling with things within the Christian faith. And to me, it's a tragedy when faith communities feel so threatened by questions. It's an absolute tragedy when we can't recognize the tensions that exist in faith and in life. And we, when we feel threatened and ashamed by those of us who might have some doubts, because doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's part of the journey toward faith. We see that in Thomas and in this story. Doubt is sometimes the way that we rearrange the mental furniture that we, we need to grow and to deepen and to strengthen our faith. 
And squelching that process only ever harms people and the community of faith. If the Bible and Jesus weren't threatened by doubting disciples, then the church ought not to be either. One of my favorite aspects of pastoral ministry are those conversations where people feel like they, you know, kind of can pull me aside and have like honest, raw, real conversations about what they're wrestling with when it comes to Jesus and the church and Christian faith. Whether it's over a cup of coffee or whether it's over a meal, they begin to share and reveal some of the tensions that they are experiencing as they pursue Jesus. And even when those things, when those issues come out as sort of doubts or questions or comments or reservations that they have about faith. I, I never, if, if ever, receive them as a challenge to faith. In fact, I, I sort of always feel like those who are willing to wrestle and process with God and with faith and with Jesus are the ones who are sincerely pursuing it. They're the ones who are really genuinely wanting to know truth. They're really wanting to know God. And my encouragement to us and our church is that we would stand in the tradition of doubting Thomas, not in a negative light, but in a positive light, recognizing that it's through wrestling with our doubts within the context of community that true faith can emerge. Bring your doubts, church, to Jesus. And in so doing, you might find and discover the grace that we need to actually believe. For those with, who are struggling with faith today, for those who have walked away from the church, but maybe you tuned in to this live stream for some crazy reason, I offer you the words of author Flannery O'Connor. She writes this, I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it in myself anyway as the process by which faith is deepened. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it and leave the rest to God. He is risen. He has risen indeed, and we as a church, we recognize how difficult it is to place your faith in this reality and this truth, this historical reality and truth. I've long found the prayer of the father who brought his child to Jesus very helpful in wrestling with those tensions in faith. He says, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. My encouragement for you who are wrestling with doubts, who perhaps walked away from the faith, but you want to believe, is that you have to wrestle with doubts within the context of a faith community, a healthy faith community, where you can wrestle with God honestly and pursue God honestly. Because what we discover is that God invites and embraces and commissions those of us who doubt to be his disciples sent on mission in the world. He calls Thomas, after all. And he's calling you, and he's calling me. And may we, as a church, receive the blessing that Jesus extended to us in our passage this morning. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe.